Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by myself, sommelier Jill Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. Well, hello. In this episode, we're going to talk about some flaws and failures in classical music and wine. I'm going to talk about a disastrous premiere and a kind of a nasty recording. And I'm going to talk about natty wine. Why is wine considered natty? I'll tell you. A couple of reasons. <laughs> Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list. And do please consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hello, Emily Reese. Hello, Jill Mott. Flaws and failures. And failures. This is yeah. not, this is definitely not going to be a wah, wah, <laughs> wah. I promise you, it'll be educational, enlightening. Oh, yeah. And surprisingly delicious yeah. in my department. Yes. But not for long. Not for long. <laughs> Which we'll learn about why. I'm going to talk about mousy wines, flaws in wine. So I'm going to talk about mousy wine and what that is. And I'm going to talk about volatile acidity. Also known as VA. Also known as VA. In the nerdy wine world. (laughs) I love that you know that. That's so great. Um, And I'm going to talk about two failures, but I'll keep those a surprise. I know that because I've had to ask like 17 different sommeliers what VA is when they're talking about wine. I know I've asked our friend Andrew what VA is. I'm like, what are you talking about, VA? And do they tell you it has to do with acetobacter, ethyl acetate, cloacara, haniaspora, and then some? Oh, cool. What are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about a massive failure of a premiere of a piece for a piece that really isn't that bad at all. So there was a little controversy behind the scenes at Scores and Pours if that actually amounted to a failure. <laughs> but <laughs> A flaw, I think. A I was flaw. like, is that a flaw? And then we just, it's a flaw. It's, uh, yeah, failure for yeah, sure. Yeah, so we're going to talk about that. And, you know, the, there are many stories of crazy premieres and premieres that didn't go the way they were supposed to go. Uh, this one is one of them <laughs> we'll talk about. And then I'm also going to talk about the very first recording I ever had of a very famous song that has... Uh, it's just a bad recording. It's just not the best recording. So we'll talk about those two things. Yeah. Sounds great. Well, on the wine front, um, so I'm not going to mention, we are not going to mention, we're Ooh, not going to yes. have a wine list yeah, this no time. Wine list. And we're not going to talk about, I'll tell you that it's a pet nat. I'll tell you it's from northeastern Spain. I'll tell you that it is from the grape trepat and it's a rosé. Okay. It's unsulfured, which is one of the reasons why it has the second problem we'll talk about, which is mouse, because we're going to let this uh, this mousiness develop in this wine. At first, it it, it really doesn't have it. It's not um, that, that bad at all, yeah. Yeah, in 30 minutes, it'll be more mm. noticeable. But I'll talk about the first issue with this wine, which is a, it's not flawed in my opinion or, or faulty, mm-hmm. but volatile acidity is something that is in all wine that is made in a natural fashion. And think of volatile acidity as being like, I've used the analogy too many times on scores and pours, but like you have a chocolate chip cookie, you put salt in that recipe. Mm -hmm. I always put salt in my sweet oatmeal. Like salt enhances. Volatile acidity is necessary for life in natural wine, but everyone's got a different threshold for how much volatile acidity is too much volatile acidity. Mine's like 
the equivalent of a salt block in winter for deer in my chocolate chip cookies. Like I can handle kind of a lot of volatile acidity and I have plenty of friends that cannot. Um, oh. I'm going to quote my friend Kate okay. uh, from Division Winery and Gamine Winery in Willamette when she says, chill. You just like a little VA in the right way. I'm like, you're right, man. You're right. I do. So, um, go ahead. Well, you VA ahead. volatile volatile acidity. It just sounds. I can't. I can't say VA. I can't. I, I don't belong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, you do with, now. Come well, on. I tangentially volatile acidity. That's something I've never been able to tell. Like I can't. I don't know. Still, I know what it means because you've explained it. I understand it has to do with oxygen. And a lack of it, maybe, uh, but I still can't taste it. Like mouse, I can taste mouse yep. immediately. But from the one time you told me what to taste for with the mouse, I've never forgotten it, and I've always remembered that. Well, so sometimes volatile acidity, in this way, you're you're noticing it more like how it smells, and it smells like this combination of like nail polish remover meets vinegar. Okay. Okay. So. I, I had to write this down in an order to explain it so I didn't okay. get on a tangent. But volatile acidity without, because I'm going to talk about ethyl acetate in a second. Okay. Volatile acidity, it smells like vinegar a little bit. Okay. So when you smell this wine, okay. you'll notice that it, we're not going to cook with this. It doesn't, we're not going to put it on a salad. Yeah. But it, but it smells like it's got a vinegary quality along with its vinosity, along with its wine like okay. qualities, yeah. right? Sure. Um, yeah. And yeah. all wines have this, right? But so this is just the threshold, the mm -hmm. level is higher so we can start to smell it. And what it is, is it you're taking acetic acid bacteria and it converts alcohol into acetic acid when oxygen is present. So you couldn't, you can't really get volatile acidity or VA when you don't have oxygen around. Okay. So it has to be an aerobic environment. And with native yeasts, so natural yeasts, meaning like you're not adding packeted yeast, mm -hmm. you have all these different amounts of a lot of the same or similar strains, Saccharomyces, Cloacara, Haniospora, Hensula, for example. And there are certain strains that are known for they'll produce like a higher concentration of acetic acid during fermentation. They'll also do, when there's a large amount of stress in a ferment, like it, the fermentation temperature is really hot or the fermentation temperature is a little too cool and almost stuck, the acetic acid bacteria will become present and will start to, to, to feed on the alcohol. Okay. And you'll really, you start to notice that. Now, when we couple that, First of all, let's smell the wine. Do you smell that? Do you smell something that smells a little bit vinegary? Yes. Okay. Yeah, like when I first breathe it, that's yep. when I catch that. And that's yeah. when you... If I breathe deeper, it kind of goes away a little? Well, what's happening is your your mind is getting used to things. So sure. sometimes people sure. will say, oh, the wine is opening up. Okay, well, that can happen. But a lot of times <laughs> it's just your mind gets bored of smells after about six seconds. Okay. And then you then you start to smell other things. Okay. Oh, my God, look at how the wine is changing. No, you're just getting bored. Okay. And so you smell it first, and then your mind gets used to that, and then you're getting okay. on to other flavors. Yeah. Um, so when we combine this with, when we combine this with um, ethyl acetate, which is 
a, an ester, an aroma. Okay. Um, that comes out of grapes or something. Yep. It's well, okay. it's an it comes out of a lot of different things in life, but in this conversation we're talking sure. about fermentation. <laughs> yeah. um, it's an it's an acetate ester, so it's in this family, and it's also produced by yeasts that at low levels, when we it's fruity. Yeah. And at high levels, it smells like nail polish remover. Okay. And when you combine what ethyl acetate does to acetic acid is it like makes it smell more enhanced or or grander and okay. you have this higher perception okay. or it's more easily perceived the quote unquote VA or okay. volatile acidity. So the acetate enhances the acidic acid to make it more volatile smelling. The presence of ethyl acetate makes your volatile acidity smell not only like vinegar, but now oh, like but also nail polish nail remover. Polish. Okay, so then, I then, you, then you I start understand. to they start to become almost synonymous with each other. Sure. Um, so I don't know. Do you? I I smell it. I mean, I but I don't yeah. mind it. No, what I about, don't. I don't mind it on the palate. Do you, do you sense that it is quite high in acidity? Yes. Yeah, but it's also not by any stretch the most acidic wine I've ever had. No, but I would say <laughs> a lot of people would taste this and say, yeah. Oh, this tastes not. I don't. Maybe they wouldn't go as far as to say nail polish remover, mm-hmm. but they would go as far as to say yeah. mouse. <laughs> mouse. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yeah. Yes, it's happening. <laughs> I should say no. It's not happening because that sucks. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but I, I, you know, I don't mind me some VA. Yeah. VA in the right way, right, yeah. Kate? Thanks for that. <laughs> it's wonderful. The wine tastes good to me so far. You know, it's not gonna in about a half hour, but. Maybe we don't save this one for Friday edits. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, tell me about a a failure of sorts or a flaw in classical music. I'm going to talk about a Russian composer named Sergei Rachmaninoff who premiered his first symphony, and the premiere was disastrous. And threw him into uh, deeper depression than he already was in, which we'll talk about. And he didn't compose for three years and then he had a great comeback, but the, that premiere was was not a successful premiere, and the piece, he never heard it again. He didn't even really hear it at the premiere, to be honest. I mean, the conductor was so bad. So, Sergei Rachmaninoff, again, he's a Russian composer, 1873 to 1943, so he lived through some tough times in Russia and actually left Russia and uh, ended up in America for the end of his life, but... He was really young when he wrote his first symphony. He wrote it in 1995, 1895. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yes! I was going to high school then! Yeah. Go Rachmaninoff! Just kidding. Coming back yeah. from the dead. No, he wrote that in 1895. <laughs> and the premiere was two years later in 1897. So basically, Tchaikovsky, uh, Peter Tchaikovsky, who was another Russian composer, died in 1893. And he was a huge mentor and influence on all Russian composers around that era, also Rachmaninoff. And Rachmaninoff took it real hard and had some trouble with some money after that and just he got robbed and just, just had some bad, bad luck for a few years, for a couple of years. Then he writes his first symphony, and then that premiere oh. goes bad. So it just seems like he was kind of having a rough time in his early 20s anyway. Stars were not aligning. Yeah. 
And that was kind of the nail on the coffin. Also, Rachmaninoff himself put a great deal of pressure on himself around this symphony and pretty much didn't work on anything else until it was finished. And I mean, it it just um, kind of also demonstrates just the importance of the symphony as something that composers would write Mm -hmm. and just how difficult it is to write a symphony and to make it good and make people care about it. And, you know, all those pressures and everything and just a bad premiere and critics panned it. He says, though, Rachmaninoff said it wasn't – he didn't care what the critics thought of it. He cared that he hated it when he heard it. But – and was it – is it true that the – you know, the conductor wasn't really prepared. Supposedly the musicians weren't really prepared. So was it the piece? Most likely not. It was everybody that was – going to prepare it and play it for everybody basically yes. sucked and you know yeah so. there were a lot of lot of factors none of which helped the the piece have any success at all so on that show there were two other premieres too so right there you've got all the or- orchestra musicians and the conductor learning three brand new pieces of music one of which is a 45 minute symphony right wow. so that's a lot of music none of it's easy cuz we're in the 20th century this isn't like Certainly not diminishing at all the the brilliance. I mean, you you know by now how I feel about Joseph Haydn, but a, a symphony that's fifteen minutes is a little different than a symphony that's forty five minutes. You know, yeah. so so these players are having to learn all this new music in the first place. And Alexander Glazunov, who is was an absolutely wonderful composer in his own right, wrote some. Oh, just beautiful. <laughs> these oh. Russians, just gorgeous, gorgeous music. You know. But he was a drunk, and he was possibly drunk during the show. Rachmaninoff never mentioned that, but other people speculated about that. Some of the critics speculated about that. Mm. Uh, So there were just a lot of things. Glazunov was, I guess, not very good with time management in his rehearsals, so the rehearsals that they did have weren't managed well. So, you know, they're maybe not learning the transitions they're needing to learn or the tempo changes or, you know, who knows what they I don't they know, whenever learn. I drink uh, slightly <laughs> excessively, I'm great at time management. <laughs> it sounds like in and of itself, that's just a <laughs> disaster. Yeah, Jesus. so, I mean, it was, uh, you know, the, the cards were not stacked in his favor for this to go well in the first place. And so, which, yeah. which movement are we going to listen to? The second movement is, it, it's all, uh, it's a good symphony. It's great. It's a great symphony. What am I talking about? It's a fantastic piece of music. It just got a bad premiere and then didn't really get revived until after Rachmaninoff died. But uh, the second movement does such a good job of, of demonstrating Rachmaninoff's colors. They are just brilliant. And, and just the instrumentation, that's what I mean by colors, you know, When's the oboe playing? What line is the oboe playing? Or whatever it is, just the way those sounds are combined to bring pleasure to the brain is uniquely Russian. Ah, it's so good. So we'll listen to a little bit of the second movement of Rachmaninoff's First Symphony. I love how the entry is so warm. It feels very warm and then all of a sudden downhill, I think of that. Yeah, yeah.
just am trying to imagine someone without good time management, a non-prepared <laughs> orchestra, and a drunk trying to execute this and have yeah. it sound good. <laughs> Doomed. Not going to happen. <laughs> oh. Yeah, not going to happen. So uh, Rachmaninoff uh, was eventually cured, I think, of his depression by visiting uh, a psychiatrist who was a musician himself. He was a viola player, but he uh, was into hypnosis and that was his thing. And so Rachmaninoff did hypnosis almost daily for an entire summer. And then he started writing again. And when he burst back onto the stage with his second piano concerto, it was just like, he was set. He was back. Yeah, he was back. Awesome. Yeah. So, Mouse. Let's well, talk about be, Mouse, Before you know? I, I, I kind of want to <laughs> talk about a, a, just speaking of like a failure. Yeah. In a premiere, I think it'd be kind of funny to, well, let's just give this more time to get even more mousy. Um, maybe we should enjoy a little bit of it before it gets too mousy. Yeah. Um, to enjoy because I I find after about an hour, the the wine uh, is is delicious up until that point. But okay, so failure in wine. This was obviously very very much so my opinion. In the 1990s, there was a surge in Americans' enjoyment of Merlot. Okay, and red grape. Red grape, yes. And I think there were like seven. I don't know. 7,000-ish acres in the early part of the decade. And by the Just end, in the U.S.? Just in the U.S., in okay. California, actually. Okay. And in the end of the decade, there, was, uh, there were 47,000 acres, approximately. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So obviously a huge surge. Yeah. And people decided, okay, well, you know, when do people drink Merlot? Obviously fall and winter, year-round, but fall and winter, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's a red wine. What— how can we capitalize on Merlot's, you know, popularity, but for people that don't drink red wine or they're drinking less red wine because it's summer and hot? Let's make white Merlot. Out of what? Sorry, censored. <laughs> Fucking disaster. Don't do that, <laughs> first of all. And then don't, like, back-sweeten and all these things, all these macro bodegas did. It was sad. Okay, so they took Merlot, and they basically made it like you'd make any sort of rosé. Oh, they a just brief like, maceration. Hardly any skin contact. Yep, just, and and bottle it. Yeah. Now, granted, I could talk about all the poor sportsmanship like activities that happen also to make white merlot. But oh, we'll such just as, such, can you give me a just for instance? Adding so much shit to it to make stabilizers, it stabilizers. Yeah, okay. flavor enhancers. Gotcha. Enzymes, color enhancers. <laughs> I'll stop there. Before I get frustrated and bite the microphone. (laughs) But I will say that the white Merlots I've tasted, you know, I taste so much wine that I ask why, why someone did this. Mm -hmm. But I contemplated like life. I was like, why? (laughs) It's just so bad. Don't just don't. So anyway, white Merlot, big time failure. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think of, you know, in that regard, like hooked on classics. You remember those records that came out in the 80s with like synth beats, like Beethoven and Bach and all that. That stuff is hideous. But when I was eight, I loved it. But I, I can say with 
certainty that I would have still loved classical music without Hooked on Classics. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure that I was traveling around the world on a boat and I got really, really sick in a country and then I was sick for the whole time and the only thing I could stomach was like ro- really cheap, shitty rosé, frozen snicker bars and pasta for like three months. I survived on those three things. <laughs> and the rosé, I'm sure there was a glass of fucking white Merlot in there because it was in the like <laughs> mid to late in 90s, so yeah, yeah. hilarious. Amazing. Anyway, what other musical odysseys do you have in the flaw department or faulty department for us? Um, there are, there really are, first of all, one can spend days on YouTube watching classical music failures. I mean, that's some funny shit, whether it's a string breaking <laughs> or whatever it is. That's <laughs> like, you can have some fun with that. But uh, more, you know, down to earth would be listening to any number of recordings that have mistakes or questionable choices or what have you. And one, I just have a really very personal connection to because it was one of the very first classical music CDs I ever bought and one of those BMG catalog or whatever, Columbia Cal, maybe, you mm-hmm. know, the. and I got this greatest hits of Aaron Copeland, <laughs> <laughs> which right there, you know. And, right there. <laughs> I mean... To, to be fair, there were some really, I mean, the good orchestras on there. The Philadelphia Orchestra is a fine, fine orchestra. Uh, their recording of Fanfare for the Common Man is not exactly the finest of recordings, but it's a difficult piece to play. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this piece, and then I'll talk about why it's so hard uh, to give them a break. It's not, you know, it's tough. But so, are you going to point out the flaw? Oh, God, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, because some people might not know what it sounds like. So we'll we'll listen to it, and then I'll explain it. We'll listen to it again. Okay. We might even get it in there a third time if we're feeling super sassy. Which we always are. <laughs> Let's do that. All right. So Fanfare for the Common Man is starting off with unison trumpets. So the trumpet players are all playing the same notes together, which is difficult to play in tune. And the way you can tell when something is out of tune... It, it kind of sounds crunchy, like you can hear whoa, 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 whoa waves, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, here you go. Here's the opening, basically, uh, of uh, Fanfare for the Common Man with a real sour note in it. Here we go. You hear the crunch there? <laughs> yeah. That's some crunchy stuff. That's some crunchy, <laughs> crunchy, crunchy and stuff. And how many people, though, do you think would recognize that? I don't know. You know Honestly, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a point of reference for that because I don't know how non-musicians hear intonation like that. Like, I don't even know. There could be someone listening right now who's like, I have no fucking idea what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, because I think we you need to I mean? actually play one that is in tune. Yeah. And then yeah, one sure. that's, you know, because sure. for, for the homies so they can... Yeah, man. Because Let's it's it. pretty... Like, to me, I notice. I'm like, ooh, uh, yeah, yep. yeah. And it sounds a little bit like the audible version of, like, uh, not nails on a chalkboard, but like... Uh, yeah. Yeah, just... It kind of is a little bit like that. It's just so clashy. So here's a different recording that's more in tune of that same piece. It's much better. Well, it's, that's flawless. Yeah, so much better. Yeah. So okay, now let's listen to the other. Let's one listen again. to the other one. 
Oh, <laughs> yeah. Do you hear? Wait, wait. Isn't that crazy? And I, then let's listen to it again one more time. All right, for funsies, I'm just going to go good one, bad one, good one, and then we'll be done. As a trumpet player, I can see, I know what's happening, and I can understand why that note would be out of tune like that. It's just amazing that that was the recording they went with. One of the things I wonder is maybe that was a live recording and they couldn't fix it. Oh, yeah, but I mean, why would they, you know, why would they release it to Spotify or release it on a CD or something like that? Well, I mean, it was a long time ago that that recording came out, so you know, maybe they just were like, whatever, it's good enough. Oh, yeah. Because now things like that wouldn't get if something like that was released now people would freak you know well, what i mean well, that so was old this recording. next this next so do you mind if i kind of seg- that's a great segue do it. because i think um and you know i don't i don't want to get too like grousing on mouse here because i think it's such a topic that's annoying to people in the natural wine world already like why cuz everybody's sick of talking about Oh. How I mean, everybody wants to know how exactly it forms. Like we know what it is, and we know uh, kind of why it's around, but we don't. There are instances where it goes away, and there are instances where it comes back or gets worse. And mm-hmm. and there's so many people out there that say all mouse is bad. There are so many people that don't care, and and it was such a hot topic in natural wine for, and kind of still is, but for like. Three or four or five years or so that it's it, I think it's like beating a dead horse. Like I, I really don't give a shit. I I can taste it. Mm-hmm. I can recognize it almost mm-hmm. right away. Yeah. And then I, there are wines that can have the smallest amount, and especially if I'm eating fatty food, mm. it then it's really it, it's almost neutralizes it in a yeah. way. Yeah. Um. But I'll well, talk about what it is first, so people can have a yeah. freaking clue about what we're talking about. Is it okay before we even go there? Is if we tell people what it tastes like? Yeah. So um. What mouse tastes like is when you, first of all, you can rarely smell it. And the reason yeah. why is because it's not apparent if the pH is low, meaning it's got high acid, which wine is usually a high acid product. Mm-hmm. And so how it becomes noticeable is when it your saliva binds with the wine, that wine raises the pH, right? The acid gets lower, then it's detectable. It becomes okay. it becomes aromatic. So it's a reaction with your saliva that makes it so strong. Yep, interesting. And so and that's why that's where you can you the rare time that you can start to smell it is mm-hmm. when the acid is so low in a wine. Yeah. So what it tastes like, we call it mouse because it, some people say it smells like a cage of mice or <laughs> you know mice hair or mice urine. I want to tell those people that put that name to it, have you ever sucked a mouse? Yeah, exactly. Have you ever like gone and like licked <laughs> wood chips from a fucking mouse cage cuz I guarantee you did not. Yeah. To me it tastes like corn chips. Yeah. Tortilla chips, but also like I remember uh one time I had gotten like a perm and like mm. elementary school or something, yeah. or like when you sucked on your hair when you had a ponytail and you were like four, mm-hmm. that taste of like hair or perm, mm-hmm. it tastes yeah. like that. Yeah. 
and but then definitely corn chips for and sure. The, the corn Fritos chips, thing. and then some people say like almondy, and I get that. It's not really like hmm. maybe like toasted almonds. I, I get where they're coming from, even though I don't think that's that's quite I'll accurate. Have to meditate on that one because it's a, a it's yeah. a little bit far fetched, but yeah. I know what they're meaning, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and what it does is it gets worse as it becomes more volatile in our nose, like bec- as it becomes more aromatic. Uh, like quote unquote on the finish, like when you go, yep, yeah, and then it gets worse and worse and builds and builds, and you can't go taste another wine, no, because it's going to be mousy. Like it sort of invades you have to your wash mouth. your glass and everything. Yep, but there are wines where it it's so slow that it's verging on tolerable. Or yeah. if you're so, yeah. what it is is it's three compounds, but the most important one we're going to talk about today, the main one, is called. Two um, acetyl tetrahydropyridine. I just call it tetrahydropyridine because the acetyl. Okay. There's so many acetyls in wine; it's ridiculous. <laughs> and there are many reasons why this can occur. The main reason is hygiene. If you're of the vin, like in the in the place. cellar, yeah, yeah, in the cell, yeah. If the cellar is not clean, and you're using low to no sulfur. Mm-hmm. which helps clean up the wines act. Yeah. It's an antioxidant. It preserves wine. Yeah. So if you're trying to make the most pure wine possible and you're not adding any lab yeast or anything, your wine is has a potential already. It's vulnerable to certain things. Yeah. So if you are not extremely cleanly, that is likely going to be an issue. There are some theories. One is barometric pressure and temperature when you decide to bottle your wine. And I'll give an example. I was in the Republic of Georgia two years ago, and I was tasting from Quevery, from the clay vessels that are underground, um, that are fermenting, uh, used for fermenting and aging wine. And, you know, this wine was beautiful, and it wasn't like I was drinking too much or I, my, my capacity. I was, like, enamored with my visit. It was, it was truly a, a really good wine. And a wine fair was two days later. I remember it being, like, quite a chilly day uh, in between, and the winemaker, you know, needed to bottle a few bottles for the wine fair. And when I tasted his, I was so excited to go up and taste the wine again because I knew that's a twice-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah. It was mousy as hell. Mm. It was totally undrinkable. Wow. Like, it, you could almost smell it. So the theory was he bottled it. was too cold when he bottled. Oh. And there's, but there's really no way to prove that there's not enough studies to say okay. that that is a and you could think of it spatially, like if it's too warm, you're giving it an environment to breed. If it's too cold, spatially, there's room for it to flourish when it comes to temperature. So that's okay. obviously not proven. Yeah. Another theory is that when you're moving something around that's living, yeah. you have to catch it like in its non-living phase. So like wine ferments, and then you have a malolactic fermentation, sometimes a conversion of yeah. of that's a bacteria that's converting the green apple. We've talked about it before. The malic acid to yeah. like a more lactic acid, mm-hmm. more kind of cr- just slightly softer. And it's thought that so during that time, and then there's like if you have yeast act like if you're moving wine around, like you're bottling a sample, or you're bottling a whole lot, or you're moving it from barrel to barrel, but it's going through malolactic for or something like that, that you could disturb yeasts and bacteria that cause this. It's actually, it, it, it is a, a lactic acid bacteria that causes this. So okay. if you disturb that, yeah. that that will like allow that to commence basically mm-hmm. its destructive ways. Yeah, I don't know. It's a interesting threshold of what people notice and what people can handle, but yeah. it's also like, it's, I would say most 
wineries, sommeliers, people that drink enough natural wine would admit that mousy wine is a fault and a very little bit is taught, like way less than yeah. volatiles. That like right away, that's the first thing a lot of people come, oh my God, it's mousy. Oh my God, it's mousy. Oh my God, it's mousy. It's just like dump it out. Don't even tell me it's mousy. We yeah. all know it's mousy, you know? Yeah. I don't know. What do you have? So I, we opened this, what, mm-hmm. f- about 35, 40 minutes ago. I've certainly had mousier. We have had mouse here on the show. We've talked about it too. And we yeah. were like, oh, it's got a little mouse, mouse. A little. But I think this is quite good. I, As a pet nat, I wish it, uh, this is probably just such a silly, naive thing to say, but as a pet nat, I wish it were fizzier yeah. a little bit mm-hmm. for having just been opened. Like I understand after it sits for a while, a lot of the carbonation kind of explodes out of it. But just to, to have that, I would have. Liked a little more bubbles, but, yeah. You know, I'm whatever. glad you pointed that out. Yeah. What about? Um, so I know that you've had being friends with me, and we're having having some natty wine up on the show. Um, <laughs> and so you've tasted some pretty strong natty mousy wine. Um, yeah. From a zero to having no mouse mm-hmm. to a ten being like undrinkable. Oh. Like you dump it out. Yeah. You wouldn't even save it the next day to see if it goes away. Where does this fall on your? Maybe a three. Yeah, to me, it's, I think it's super low. Yeah, super low mouse. To me, it is too. It's like totally yeah. drinkable. Yep. Um, but I could see someone. I could see a person or two being like, mm, "It's too mousey, mouse, mouse." I know who these people are, so and I, I don't know. drink wine with them. <laughs> <laughs> but I could see. I also yeah. could see people not even knowing what it is. Oh, of course, because yeah. and they're just like, "This is freaking great this and great. really rare and awesome." Mm-hmm. Yeah, they is, just. Yeah, the one thing that mouse taught me is that you literally cannot ever then eat tortilla chips or corn chips of any kind while you're drinking wine because it just ruins it all. It just, like, makes the wine taste mousy even if it's not mousy. You know what I mean? Oh, my God, no. I've never done that before. Really? Yeah, I got to do that. Like, have wine and then have corn chips and be like, it's mousy, I mean, wait, it's just Tostitos or whatever. It's just the chips I'm eating, yeah. Weird. Mm -hmm. Yep. Thanks for that experiment. I'm going to do that tonight. Yep. <laughs> I got corn chips at home. <laughs> yes. There you go. Do you have Do you have any other? Because I have another. I have a failure. If you don't have any more go flaws ahead. or failures go to ahead. talk about in classical no, music, I mean, no. Go ahead. Yeah. So, <laughs> all right. I know that someone is making us a wind machine from our first or second episode. I know someone's yeah, going to be. Someone's going to do that for us. Someone's sure. going to make uh, us some T-shirts. I've mentioned that I would prefer. Just don't ever send me a bottle of sparkling Shiraz because I will block you <laughs> from your ability to download the podcast. Like how does something like that even happen? Because for me, adding – I don't mean to just jump right in here, but I'm going to. With sparkling anything, when you when there's sparkle in it, when there's carbonation in something, it makes things super intense, right? It, it increases the intensity. So to me, something like a Shiraz is a really intense – Flavor and grape. I don't know if that's now true. Now just imagine adding sugar to it or I back mean, sweetening or like stifling fermentation. I mean, it's like yeah. it's nasty. Yeah. It's nasty, nasty. It just seems it, absurd to me. So it's mostly done in Australia um, as like a na- like a national, like a thing that you would get if you were going to Australia. You'd be like, oh, my God, I had this sparkling shiraz. Well, a some, some, few people decided to export them. Okay. And they are – Much to Jill Mott's chagrin. Oh, just like chagrin doesn't even begin to cover it. So a typical dry wine hovers right around 
two to five grams per liter of residual sugar to be considered a dry wine. And it, remind us what residual sugar is. Like sugar. Okay. Like the, <laughs> like the taste of the taste of residual, the taste okay. of sugar, right? Okay. The taste gotcha. of sweetness. Yeah. So I shouldn't say the taste, the sensation of sweetness, right? Okay. So now imagine zero to I'll say zero to six grams per liter of that. That's your dry Prino Grigio. That's your dry this and that. Okay. Think of how many steps we have to get us up to 30 to 40 grams per liter of residual sugar. You got to be kidding me. I am so not kidding you. Wow. So you have like off dry, you have medium dry, you have medium sweet, you have all the way up to you're in a sweet wine dessert category. Now it's red and now it's got bubbles. Gross. And it, and it's not like it tastes like a Shiraz or a Syrah from the Rhone or from Australia, some of the beautiful stuff that's coming out of Barossa these days. Mm-hmm. No, this is like macro, insipid, name the wine that is $8 for two liters, dump sugar in it, and then CO2 inject it like soda pop. And that's so that that I can that I consider a failure only because it it besides being like a fun national thing that was an attempt to be like hey, this is something yeah. we do that nobody else does there was like nothing good about it other than it was like a national thing it wasn't like because it's just because it's Shiraz I, I'm yeah. I'm here to say I know there are people that are doing that that's like freaking Merlot in there they're just like wow. dumping red they just don't doesn't even care anyway. it doesn't even matter. Here's me, and I'm going step one, step two, step three, off my soapbox. Yes. <laughs> Big time failure. Never got to be Love a thing. Love that. Love that. Wow. To me, that is the, that's like the hooked on classics version of wine. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just novelty, and it's for the, you know, layman to enjoy. Like the but person not, who doesn't. Not even, even the layman, because I mean, hey, let's let's be honest. How many laymen are listening to classical music and like drinking? Well, in the eighties, more than we're now. So in sure. the eighties, when they did Hooked on Classics, far more than do now. Yeah, know? I just mean like. Yeah, I know. I, what you, mean. I, you know, there's a lot of people out there that don't know a lot about wine, but they uh, they drink some decent wine and or mm-hmm. they spend spend a little bit of extra money on some things. But it's just like this is just just to be kitschy, and it just yeah. there was nothing yeah. soulful about it. Mm-hmm. With that, mm-hmm. I'm going to say let's drink this uh, two to three on the mousy threshold. Yeah. <laughs> look at I have to pour it from on high to agitate a little fizz for Ms. Reese. Mm-hmm. Here, uh, here's to flaws and and faults that and failures. Yeah. Without them, there wouldn't be the beautiful and the great. That's correct. Cheers. The scores and pours. The scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scores and pours and on Instagram at scores and pours. If you like the show, we would be so grateful if you could consider making a financial contribution. You can do that at patreon.com slash scores and pours. This episode is edited by Emily Reese and Joe Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.